Irish men and Irish women. In the name of God and of the dead generations from which she receives her old tradition of nationhood, Ireland, through us, summons her children to the flag and strikes for her freedom. Having organized and trained her manhood through her secret revolutionary organization, Irish men and Irish women, in the name of God and of the dead generations, from which she receives her old traditions of nationhood, Ireland through us, summon her children to her side and strive for her freedom. Having organized children in America and by gallant allies in Europe, in the but relying on her first and her own strength, she strikes in strikes full confidence, full confidence of victory. And uh, as I say now, this would be uh, uh, Pierce's actual cell uh, here in the jail. And uh, it's amazing because the, jail, the cell is pretty much the same as it was then. Um, it would have been whitewashed, of course. I mean, I know looking around at it today, it's, it's fairly horrific looking. But it was actually painted white uh, when it was in use. Um, I was once told in here that, uh, as far as we know, they actually uh, removed uh, the beds. The British authorities removed the beds from the cells before they put the leaders into it. And someone who visited uh, Pierce at the time remarked that it was, it was real shocking to see the President of the Irish Republic, uh, as he was styled, basically sleeping on the ground there beside us. Uh, perhaps using his great coat as a pillow, so you know it's, it's uh, you know they basically just lay on the floor in the uniforms in which, they, uh, in which they were captured. You know, he would have spent really, I suppose, maybe writing and with the priests, was praying as they all did. Um, again, it's something that you know that people would know, say, from Kevin Barry years later, that they spent their last night often for hours in prayer along with the priests. These were intensely. It seems unusual to us today, but they were intensely religious men. And this is probably, you know, this is probably, as far as we know, what he would have been doing uh, during his last few hours, really, alive here. We're sitting now in my office at the top of the Hermitage, Pierce's St. Endes, a beautiful 18th-century house set in 50 acres of attractively landscaped uh, park. Um, and I suppose you could say Pierce was attracted here by these very features, the fact that it was a noble house, um, with the influence of nature immediately available as an educational inspiration for the boys. Uh, when he was living in Collinswood, where he first set up that... The first time I saw the name Pierce was at the bottom of the proclamation. I wondered, who is this man? Growing up in Newry, there was no talk of him at school. And when I asked people what they thought of him, I was led to believe he was either a hero or someone you shouldn't speak too loudly about. In an attempt to find out more about Pierce, I went to St. Andes, and I met there the curator of the Pierce Museum, Pat Cook. Um, it's very difficult to find one systematic statement of what Pierce's, inverted commas, philosophy of education was. I think, basically, it was, it was worked up over a period of time. The key element, to my mind, was his visit to Belgium in 1904, where he saw... Uh, Flemish being and French being taught bilingually in the schools of Flanders and that gave him the sense, he was an activist by nature he was a practical man, he says once I see a way to do something I will then go and do it so rather than being led by an idea in that instance he was, he was led if you like by the practical example of what was possible and Pierce once said famously to desire is to hope, to hope is to believe and to believe is to accomplish so 
having seen it work there, he came back absolutely determined, wrote a whole series of enthusiastic essays on, on the Belgian school system and says, we can do it here. We can set up a bilingual Irish and English school. And if nobody else is willing to do it, I'm going to do it. And that's exactly what he did. Incredibly enough, at the early and tender age of 28, I mean, imagine setting up, um, you know, such a t- undertaking such an enormously uh, challenging venture at the age of 28. It, is, it, was, it showed courage of great, very great kind of tremendous conviction. Uh, but there were personal instincts of his own that were very large in his educational philosophy. I mean, he was fundamentally a gentle man, uh, which probably explains his repugnance to corporal punishment. I don't think it was a philosophical position he had on that one so much as a personal you know, emotional principle, if you like, that it was just simply wrong to beat people and to try and achieve educational ends by, by that means. Uh, so that was actually, I would say, a very important feature of his, of his educational approach. Hi, Christian Bloodthirsty. Four. What do you think... The idea of blood sacrifice. Now, in case you don't know what that is, it's Pierce's notion, and Connolly shared it later on, Pierce's notion of one man sacrificing himself for the, for the people, as Christ did and as he thought Cúchulainn did. Cúchulainn and Christ figures, you know, they play a, a large role, right? So the blood sacrifice... Right? Yeah, it's a bit of a difficult question to answer in many ways because you have to wonder that, like, if the rising didn't happen, well, like, how close w- would we have been still to England, especially coming up to World War II? Having heard what Pierce's own school was like, I went to Sing Street CBS to find out how they teach the history of Pierce. Yeah, yeah. Well, I read a quote that he um, said he wanted to, that the blood would warm the heart of the ort or something like that, and it doesn't seem as if he was bloodthirsty. He didn't seem to want to chop people's head off and cut them. Or, you know, he didn't use any foul language or anything like that. So I do think I agree with what he, uh, Stephen said. Was He had a romantic view of it and he didn't really learn what it was like until he actually did it. Because as far as I know, he didn't, wasn't in any battles or anything else before that. So that's probably what he... He probably had a, a kind of romantic notion of it. What do you think of the term blood sacrifice? Um... It's a bit of a dangerous. It's a bit of a dangerous sounding term because I mean, it's like saying that you you know you will put yourself out in the firing line to be shot, or that other people should. Like it's a bit hypocritical to believe and say a blood. Well, first of all, I would say you can't separate Pierce like Pierce from the nationalist. But then the question begins to get more complicated. Are you talking about Pierce, the cultural nationalist, or Pierce, the political uh, nationalist? I think there's a there's a there's a, an order of development that comes. And it's, it's, it seems reasonably clear and consistent to me. Up to about 1910 or so, I think you can say that Pierce was more or less exclusively a cultural nationalist. That's not to say that he was not capable of responding to and appreciating a certain kind of, shall we say, physical force rhetoric, which was part of the larger zeitgeist of Europe at the time. We must understand this, that all that younger generation believed in values of chivalry, and dolce et decorum est pro patria mori, how sweet and noble it is to die for the, la- the fatherland. The whole generation that went into the First World War across Europe were no different from Pierce in their understanding of this need to stand up and die for principles. Uh, and he, of course, when he moved, when he started his school, he began to speak of these 
you know, of these noble principles, shall we call them. Cook Holland was his exemplar of this. But, you know, you do find him for all that, sitting on a, on a home rule platform with John Redmond in 1912. You do find him writing in one of the school magazines around 1910, you know, that... Uh, you know, you, you, that the, the, the Irish person can take, must take Ireland for granted. You need not, you know, ignore foreign games, pray Irish ones. He still had this confidence that if we could, if we could succeed in the cultural project, we would, we would simultaneously succeed in the political one. And that was a kind of a gradualist uh, kind of vision at that time. So what happened to Pierce? Well, this is the complicated question. I encountered Pierce at school in the late 1950s, when he was described in my school book as probably the most noble figure in Irish history. And I was told at the same time that it was predicted that he would sometime be canonised as a saint. And having a curious disposition... 28 years ago, Ruth Dudley Edwards published a biography of Pierce. The book is now out of print. The reaction to the biography was absolutely extraordinary. Um, Every budding author thinks that Everybody wants to buy her book, but um, I'm a realist as well. What stunned me was that it suddenly became a main talking point that I was interviewed in RTE News. And then when I went over to Ireland to do a few programmes and a bit of publicity, I discovered that I had suddenly become, become in some circles, um, a ferocious enemy of all that was good and great in the Irish nation. Um, I kept being described as brave... I learned at that stage that I was something called a revisionist. I didn't know what a revisionist was. I was, I was no academic. I was just somebody who had written a book. And apparently I found the reason I'd written this book was in order to diminish the Northern Irish nationalists, that that was the whole reason for writing the book, whereas I'd written a biography of a man who interested me. He was in many ways a very fine um, and brave man. Unfortunately, he was also messianic. And that messianism took him to believe that he had the right, with tiny number of other people, to sacrifice themselves and many other people, I believe unnecessarily, um, but with absolutely no mandate whatsoever. An awful lot of people died in the slums in Dublin because Patrick Pearce and his colleagues went out to make a gesture. Those people from the slums didn't ask to be sacrificed to the ideas of people they would have thought were crackpots. My name's Tommy McKerney. I'm uh, living in Monaghan, a former member of the Provisional IRA. Do you remember the first time you heard the name Pierce? It's a long, long time ago. I imagine it was from my parents or possibly even my grandparents. In many ways, I was reared in a Republican family um, with long-term connections with Irish Republicanism. And... Uh, militant Irish Republicanism of the Fenian type. Uh, both of my grandfathers had been members of the IRA in the 1920s through the Black and Tan War. So, uh, as a child, I remember them speaking of Pierce. I remember my mother and father speaking of Pierce. But at the same time, I think we have to be clear that it wasn't oppressively so or it wasn't monotonously so. The great interests through my childhood were, as as there would be for any other child, school and playing and football and that type of thing. But among others, there were other figures from the past and the Republican uh, canon who were mentioned often. 
And where I was reared and where I went to secondary school in Dungannon, uh, probably Tom Clark would have loomed even larger, if only for the reason that Tom Clark always considered himself to be a Dungannon man, and we'd considered him to be a Dungannon man. He spent most of his uh, life uh, as a young adult and a youngster in Dungannon town. He was uh, reared in Dungannon from he was five years of age until he left at about 25. So in all senses, we, he was no one of in that area. But Pierce was the orator. Pierce, if you like, in my opinion, was the man that blew the bugle for revolution. Uh, he, he, he could warm the crowd. He could write the prose that, that, that energised the people. I think you always keep in mind was that the famous, famous speech that Patrick Pierce made over the graveside of O'Donovan Rossa. Uh, it has become a, a Nikon uh, of Republican history and Irish history for that matter. But he took counsel from Tom Clark before he made that speech. He asked Clark, how hot will I make it? And it was Clark who gave the definitive word, make it as hot as hell. That doesn't take away, of course, from Pierce's stature within Irish Republicanism, nor does it diminish his his character in our eyes at all. As a, as a younger man and uh, as a youngster, of course, I, I tended to lionise him, among others, among others. This is part of the complexity of Pierce. I don't know the extent to which Pierce had a highly sophisticated political philosophy. I think he was a man with very strong emotional drives, deep emotional drives within himself. Um, and that he tended to catch a ride, if you like, on evolving political circumstances and fit himself into them. He once described himself as the most, you know, the most dangerous revolutionary of them all. Well, why was that? I think he probably felt that, you know, he's the guy who, who, who espoused this emotional extremism, that he was willing to sacrifice himself for something that he believed in. And in a way, he wasn't carrying any sophisticated political baggage that went along with that. He didn't have any more sophisticated political analysis. He thought that the act, the gesture itself, was what defined the political reality. And in a sense, that way he was travelling light. You know, by comparison with, the, like, say, even with the likes of Arthur Griffith, who had spent his life working up whether you agree or disagree with it, a quite complex political analysis of the condition of Ireland in the modern world. He wasn't a, he wasn't a normal politician or political personality in that sense. So I think it's a kind of a misreading of history to be ascribing to Pierce very elaborate political positions. I don't think he had elaborate political positions. He believed that character was the driving force of history. He believed that character itself would define the political moment. And I suppose that's what we have to deal with more than anything else in 1916, that it was a revolution defined by a very powerful set of personalities. My name is Noel Hughes, and we are outside of Liberty Hall here on a 1916 walking tour of the various buildings that took, uh, took place on the north side of Dublin. What I speak about I never learned it from a book. I was amongst the survivors of that period of time, the people of that 1916, that fought 1916. And I got the stories from them. And that is the only way that I know about it. Now, Pierce, which I'm told, was in the GPO, marching up and down with his revolver and his sword. 
Pierce would go and fire some shots according to Elizabeth O'Farrell and to Brendan Condon told me that Pierce was a very brave man. He was a very determined man. A man who could see nothing only in his mind the freedom of his country. At 25 past 12, the Lancers came galloping down O'Collins Street. And Connolly gave his order, hold fire, hold fire. And in holding fire, Pierce then gave the orders, fire. It seems like a rather quaint phrase at this stage, and it's, it's kind of like a label, a simplistic label that's um, stuck on to Pierce. I think the, the unhistorical aspect of that label is that it fails once again to understand how incredibly typical Pierce's sensibility in, in accepting or endorsing that view of the world is of his generation. You know, the, the young poets of the First World War, Rupert Brooke and all of these, they all long, longed for, you know, the, the, the extinction and the gesture of rushing towards the trenches. That's there very clearly in Rupert Brooke's poetry. It's there in Wilfred Owen's poetry. It's there, interestingly enough, in the writings, for instance, of Thomas Mann as well and people like this, Death in Venice, 1912, written. There's a kind of a sense of a fond de siècle. We're living in a tired world. We need to make, you know, gestures of renewal. We need to rid ourselves, purify ourselves in, in a great war, which is exactly what they got, but not in a form that they wanted it. I'm Dr Pat Wallace. I'm the director of the National Museum of Ireland, a position I've held for 17 years now, believe it or not. So in that time, we've, held, we've had a couple of 1916 exhibitions. We're in the permanent gallery here, devoted to 1916 and the War of Independence. Is it difficult to preserve the name of Pierce? Is it difficult to accurately represent him? Uh, it isn't. It, sh- it should be very easy. I know that Scully and uh, the St. Enders, uh, they do a very good job out there and they, forever his name will be associated with that school. Uh, it is not, nor should it be. Patrick Pierce, uh, people have tried to take from him, tried to run him down, tried to ridicule him in a way. He should be looked at as a man of his time, an extraordinary figure, uh, a, a kind of a symbolic almost poetical figure, uh, he would have had no role to play. Uh, when you think of the roughness and the rough play that was necessary to win the War of Independence, which was won by the likes of Collins and uh, people on the ground, uh, you know, operators like Collins and Mulcahy and uh, those sort of fellows, you, you, I mean, Pierce couldn't have fitted into their world at all. They, they were pragmatic um, guerrilla leaders and operators uh, and even after that when the setting up of the free state I don't know would Pierce have any role to play in the kind of fixer appeaser nature that was there setting up the or, or organs of state and even in the de Valera era, de Valera was a great leader as regards flexibility statesmanship, give and take but de Valera also believed in the revival of the Gaelic language and he belongs with that era as well so it's very unfair to, to select certain writings by any of these leaders and ridicule them in the light of our time. In many ways, if you're talking about the legacy of Pierce and those other characters like uh, Collins and uh, de Valera, their legacy really is a legacy uh, concerned with the Gaelic past, concerned with inspiring people for the future. What do you make of the claim that certain Republican figures seem to make, that they are the true heirs 
of peers. Um, what is that supposed to mean, though? I mean, an heir to what? I mean, you know, it's the Irish people who are the heir to the country and not one person. And I feel sure he would have said that, that he was doing for the Irish people, not for, um, you know, just for himself. He was doing for, for democracy. If he wanted the republic, he would have wanted a democracy and he wouldn't have wanted what James Connolly would have wanted, a communist state. So I, I wouldn't really think that, he can't really say something like that. I mean, he didn't found Sinn Féin either, so, you know, Arthur Griffith founded it, and it's not exactly what he wanted either. So you can't really say that, they, they, well, if they want to be the heirs, they want to be the heirs. They're not like his children or anything, so can't really. The point of breaking to you is this, that Pierce led a revolution to create an all-Ireland republic embracing Catholic, Protestant and dissenter. Sinn Féin, for example, today claimed that they were involved in a struggle for liberation to embrace the same ideals, to create an Irish Republic, a socialist one, albeit, which would take in Catholic, Protestant and dissenter. Now, in that way, can you see a continuity between Pierce and, let's call them, the uh, armed element of republicanism? Irish republicanism set out to establish a democratic republic on this island when it, when we were ruled by an absolute monarch and ruled by absolute monarchism and ruled by a very privileged elite. It has been our unfortunate history that we have only been able to establish a democratic republic through conflict with those who denied us the right to establish a democratic republic on, on this island. Now, those are the negatives. Those, that has been the downside of our commitment to a democratic republic on this island. It is very unfortunate, and it has been a very tragic consequence of it. But I don't believe that you can lay that at the feet of Irish republicanism uh, because we adhered to a democratic republican philosophy and have brought it about in many parts that we can be blamed for... The, the tragedies that, that, that we inevitably faced in our attempt and somewhat successful attempt to, to achieve the Democratic Republic in two centuries. We are now in Merseyd of where the house here in Mercy Plunkett's shop of where they could go no further. It was decided in this building by Pierce that a surrender would be made. And after a while, a white flag came out of that window there. A white flag came out of that window up there. And the British stopped firing. And then Elizabeth O'Farrell came out with the white flag and a surrender note from Pierce. She went up to the top of Moor Street. And going up to the top of Moor Street, she met with General Brigadier Lowe. And General Brigadier Law's son. She told him with the heartfelt words that the Commanding Chief of the Irish Forces wishes to treat and meet with the General of the Occupied Forces. He told her to go back and tell the Commanding Officer, whoever he would be, to come out. He didn't know who it was. So, after a while, Pierce came out alongside of her and he marched up to the top here of Murstead, where Pierce handed his revolver and a sword over. Pierce 
must be in a broken hearted man knowing that he had to surrender. I was beginning to get a sense of just how complex the legacy of Pierce is. Back in the National Museum, Pat Wallace was all too aware of these difficulties. The problem is that in the 1980s, people in the 26 counties were so upset at what was happening in the name of nationalism and in the name of republicanism north of the border that they, they shied away from their own history, from the glories of our own history, right, and understandably, but they shouldn't have done that. They, as it were, uh, uh, stepped aside from their own history and they left it be hijacked and, and used by a small minority of people for their ends. If that small minority is using it for their own ends, and if we have cut ourselves loose from that legacy, then so that's a, a, a terrible thing. And, it, and it's, it, it's, it's our own fault then if our history is bastardized and, and cannibalized and selectively used. It shouldn't have been. We should have stood by our history and we can, we can cure and change all this by uh, making history ever more relevant and popular at school, in the school curriculum. I know it is in the primary school. should be even more so, though. And we shouldn't be dumbing it down or sexing it up. We should tell the truth about the past, and we should, we should uh, not be afraid for children to have proper heroes like Pierce, like Connolly, uh, like Griffith, uh, like, Annie, like Dev, like Collins. These should all be heroes because because we, we created a vacuum, uh, taking it away from the curriculum, reducing its role, its relevance, its reference to our lives, we've only ourselves to blame for this. And certain ministers for education in the 80s are responsible for this, but they, had it, they did it with cabinet approval and with popular acclaim, and we've gone away from it. Therefore, they were unpopular. That's why Pierce is unpopular. Pierce should be very popular. What, what did he ever do wrong? All he ever did was give his own life uh, for a cause, and he never realized that by giving that life that, that uh, it would lead to the creation of a free state. No, I think it's absolutely understandable. They're very nervous. And why not? Because they, they're riding a few horses. If you celebrate 1916, if you're celebrating what was in essence a tiny cabal starting a revolution without any kind of mandate at all, how do you say that's okay, but um, what's been happening in Northern Ireland isn't? How can you say Pierce was right, but the unelected cabal that um, ran the IRA from 1970-odd onwards were um, not justified? Uh, it's a point that Conor Cruz O'Brien made really in the 60s. We have told young people that what Pierce and his colleagues did was right, and now we tell them that what they are doing is wrong. It set a very difficult precedent, and the government, recognising this, have dodged the issue continuously. They now see that he's somebody who not only is the inspiration of the provisional IRA, whom until quite recently everybody was pretending were good guys, laterally, but also of the real IRA and the continuity IRA and any IRA you're having yourself. I believe that certainly over perhaps since his death we have seen two or three different uh, interpretations of Pierce, his outlook, his life and his contribution to Irish history. Pierce because while he wasn't uh, opposed in any sense 
to equality and economic equality and fair treatment for the general population and the poor. I think it's fair to say at the same time that he was not of the classical socialist mode. He certainly wouldn't have been an orthodox Marxist as James Connolly was. And because of that and because it was possible to interpret Pierce as purely an idealist and nothing other than an idealist, it was possible and he was used and his memory exploited by Ireland and the establishment and the the governing parties of Ireland for perhaps 40 or 50 years after his death, certainly from the time of the, the treaty until the outbreak of the Northern Troubles. Pierce was deemed to be the safe, the safe, the acceptable face of militant Irish republicanism, an idealist who didn't concentrate, according to their interpretation, on economic equality, who didn't point an accusing finger at the millions who were going into emigration, the deplorable wages, the unemployment, the the very inadequate social services that we had on this island. Uh, He was a much safer person to examine and to hold up as an example. I think we owe it to him to take notice of the kind of person he was and to continuously reassess the kind of person he was rather than continuously evoking the same old stereotypical cliché, the Gaelic Catholic blood sacrifice summed up in this one personality. That's a kind of a cardboard two-dimensional figure. I mean, Pierce's Catholicism is a very interesting phenomenon in itself. You can question, you can unpick all three of those things in terms of the 1916 Rising. But in the case of Pierce, for instance, it's surely significant that the first ever revisionist attack on Pierce was written by a Jesuit. A Jesuit was highly uneasy about Pierce's conflation of of Catholic theology with uh, with pagan heroism in the form of Cucullin, for instance. Where's that coming from? How orthodoxly Catholic is that? So you see, you can you can you can we owe it to Pierce to go back and actually find out what kind of a person he was, leaving aside the baggage of trying to make him conform to a particular kind of ideological argument that we want to conduct in the present day. Two years ago in the Commons of the Irish Times, there was a, a very remarkably, one of the longest-running debates in those very interesting letters columns uh, was on the subject of Pierce himself. But if you look at that debate, it had nothing to do with Pierce. It had everything to do with the, this, this kind of this stereotypical profile Pierce, the Porrick Pierce. Would it be fair to say that a younger generation now in Ireland that's undergone significant changes in terms of society, they don't care about political freedom. All they care about, say, is an economic freedom, and that's what they crave. And they couldn't care less about 1916, couldn't care less about Pierce. Is that a fair point? It's a sad point, <laughs> if, it, if it's true. I don't, I don't think it can be entirely true. And if it's true, it's not their fault. It's not the young generation's fault. It's our fault, the older generation, who have abdicated from their responsibilities by, by subtracting history from the various uh, educational processes, taking history, diminishing history as a leaving cert value subject, by taking, uh, by making sort of current affairs history, and by take, by not studying various aspects of our past, by eschewing and avoiding all the glorious achievements of ancient Ireland, 
by, by reducing the distinctiveness of Ireland in the historic, in a historical sense and in the historical consciousness. No wonder young people then have no interest in Ireland or in, and that they become greedy, capitalistic, little, little uh, Celtic uh, tiger people. That, would be, that is bad and, and it will only lead to the destruction of the whole country. And if he was hijacked by Northern nationalists, he had certainly an awful lot of willing collaborators among Southern revisionists who were more than willing to hand him over, if you see what I mean. Because, you know, those who were willing to argue, you know, for a very narrow, almost fanatical reading of Irish history through peers were supported in that reading by those, who, uh, by those who were arguing effectively the opposite, saying, yes, Pierce was that, we agree with you, and you take him and you run away with him. He's yours. And I think Pierce was too readily handed over to, to, to the narrow ground, if you like, in a lot of instances. Uh, but he's still there to be argued and debated over. And I still think if you go back and you look at the man and pay any close attention to him, he, he, the, his sheer complexity stands up to analysis. There was an awful lot more to Pierce then just simply met the eye. And he was basically kind of very quickly fashioned up into this iconic Pierce very soon after the 1916 Rising. And I'm just going to give you one concluding symptom of how quickly and how effectively this iconic Pierce was created. And it's the phrase Porrick Pierce. Porrick Pierce appeared for the first time uh, in the monumental collection of Pierce's works, which began to be written or be compiled just after the rising, first volume appearing in 1917, edited by Monsignor Brown. And he refers to him there as Porrick Pierce. Now, if there was one thing Pierce was, the real Pierce, he was punctilious about the Irish language and the English language. He never signed an, a, a, a letter or a piece of writing in English, anything other than P.H. Pierce, punctilious, you see, P.H. Uh, Pierce, and all his letters in writing, Irish, Irish are signed Porrick Mock Pierish. This mongrelism, Porrick Pierce, is an invention. It's a post-1916 invention, and it very rapidly becomes in, installed. Now, isn't it remarkable that people who putatively are supposed to be admiring Pierce are at the same time taking this kind of liberty with his understanding of the role of language in Irish life? I think it's one of the great ironies in a way, shall we say, uh, ironies of nomenclature in, in modern Irish history that Pierce is misnamed continuously and consistently in this way. Okay. Six. Does the present situation in Ireland owe anything to Pierce? He would have been the first person to be shot by his own colleagues because they would have found him naive beyond belief and difficult because too principled. People like that are always shot when the revolution happens. If not shot by the enemy, they get shot by their own. So I don't think it would have been around to affect anything. He was uh, removed from that cell over there and uh, it's on, if people who, who, who know Kilmainham Jail, it's on the West Wing now, it's on the, the first floor of the West Wing. He would have been taken from there uh, I believe it was at dawn, maybe around four, half four in the morning. This is what we're looking at. So you can imagine, like at that time, I mean, it was fairly dark at, at, at that time in the morning, and brought along the hallway to uh, one of the staircases and down there and just straight out here to the yard. And of course, the yard in those days would have looked slightly different 
uh, to what it appears here today. Um, there were small uh, sheds on here. Uh, of course, it was the old hired labour yard, the stonebreaker's yard. So it was slightly different in appearance. But this is where he would have been brought up here to uh, where the cross is. And just where we're standing and literally just tied onto it. Um, of course, they were all blindfolded. They would have had their arms behind their backs and possibly maybe their legs tied as well. And, uh, I mean, by general accounts now, Pierce faced his execution very bravely. People would go, oh, you know, this is just you know part of nationalist mythology. But apparently now the man uh, did go to his uh, execution uh, particularly bravely. Uh, again, it's, you know, it's hard to get words to describe it, like when you're, when you're standing and at this part of the yard. You do these tours every day of the week, you know, and... Uh, Yet when you actually do come down here and stand and you see pretty much the same sight uh, that Pierce would have seen in his last few hours alive, it's, uh, I mean, there's not words really to describe it, you know. If those people who claim to be descended from him and are in the ascendant at the moment of his, the provisional IRA, uh, happened by some misfortune finally to succeed in undermining our democracy the way they are trying to do, now who knows what Pierce would be doing in that 2016 um, I think the Republic of Ireland is a very healthy democracy. I hope it can fight off the threat it's facing at the moment from subversives, terrorists and people who are essentially embarked in a fascist um, determination to take over, to take power by hook or by crook. I hope our democracy survives. If it does, it will be stronger and healthier. And I think in 2016 it will be capable of having a robust and sophisticated look at what happened a century previously. There is a belief that the 50th anniversary in 1966 gave fresh impetus to the IRA of later years. I think that's frankly a mistake, that there were far more fundamental and serious reasons. The profoundly anti-democratic nature of Northern society was what regenerated the IRA in in the 1970s, not the commemoration of 1966. But um, I wouldn't like to think that by 2016 that the people of Ireland would be so uh, intimidated that they would refuse to commemorate the people of 1916 and acknowledge the tremendous contribution they've made, Pierce included. And I go back to the point that Yes, let's let's look again at Pierce, but let's look at it in a perfectly serious, stringent and rigorous way. Uh, let's look at what he did. Let's look at, at the positive aspects of the man. And if there are negative aspects there, we'll not hide them. But let's not do it with a political agenda. No matter what you think about 1916, you have to engage with it. It is where this state, this sovereign nation comes from. One way or another, all that EEC prosperity is built on the back of national sovereignty. The wealth of Ireland today in some way is traceable through that. That's a positive result of 1916, if you like. And if you ignore it, it's almost psychotic. Ignoring your own history is psychotic. So we have to engage with it. I have to, though, say that the recent school texts, um, uh, secondary school texts especially that I've seen, are paying more attention to 1916. There has been a readjustment there, and that's only positive, I think. Pierce is part of the militant Fenian Republican legacy on this island, which has at its best been fearless, militant, democratic and republican. And he fits into that 
tradition. He's part of it. He's a major part of it. And that will be his legacy that he has uh, contributed to that very, very significant dynamic on this island with all that it has meant for this island uh, and all that it has uh, provided the people of this island with and all the good it has done in spite of the pain that we have endured while trying to bring it about. And that's where Pierce rests as one of the great pillars of that tradition.